Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers, hence the whole in whole truth, were creative geniuses, help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and joining us on this journey. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. From Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Kurt Dupuis. We got a great one today. Yeah, great we do. One. Not just good, great. Top There's- tier, grade A. We like all our episodes we've done. The ones we didn't like, we've we've chucked in the can. But there are only a few that when we're done with the interview, Kurt will call me or I'll call him and he'll say, and I quote, you know what to say? What, what you say to me? That was a banger is what you say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's that's what happened with this one. We, we had Penny Phillips on and Kurt will intro that in a little bit, but um, she was just phenomenal. And it's just one of those interviews where it's like, we covered a lot of ground, like how are we going to edit this down to keep it, you know, within the time limits, you know, because we covered that much good stuff. She was fantastic. She's already said, too, that she'll come back on. So there, that she'll she'll be a recurring guest like like some others because we did not cover everything. She's going to regret saying that to us. Yeah, she is. But she said it. We have it. We have it taped. So Penny, <laughs> if you're a good person, you're going to have to do that just because you said you're going to do it, you know. But I feel like we may be headed to a block number situation. But anyways, it was... Uh, it was wonderful to have Penny on. I, I want to start uh, introduce something on the front end here that I've been thinking about lately and talking to folks about, which is the idea of a wholesaler report card. So what's the impetus of this? You ever go and you're about to meet with a financial professional and you're like, yeah, you know, six months ago, year one year ago, I suggested or I recommended this strategy to them. It's either been really good or it hasn't lived up to expectations. So you're like, man, okay, this is going to be an interesting conversation. And you go in and of course, they don't remember that you made that recommend. Have you been in that situation? <laughs> Every day of my life. Yes. Yeah. So I had this idea that to just start a wholesaler report card, if you're meeting with wholesalers, start a document, a note, wherever you keep your notes. Basically each time someone makes a suggestion or a recommendation to you, document it, whether you invest in it or not. If you invest in it, you're keeping an eye on it. But even if you don't, because even if you don't decide to do that, shouldn't you want to evaluate the suggestions that people are giving you over time to evaluate whether that wholesaler X, Y, and Z has good suggestions? Does that seem reasonable? Well, we, we all do this intuitively in, in real life, in real time, don't we? Like we, we process this stuff, we tuck it away, and we say, hey, we, over time, was that a good idea or not? But what you're talking about is how you build credibility, right? That's, yeah. that's how you build credibility over time. And, and I, so the point you're making is if you're not tracking, uh, th- then how do you actually know whether these thoughts and recommendations are valid? Exactly. This happens a lot in our business though. I mean, so I think of like forecasters who say, oh yeah, that's X the market's going to get a hit, going to hit X market's going to hit Y this year. Like, where's the level of accountability? And I've seen studies that say like, the guys that pick the winners or, you know, with or without the spread on, on like NFL games do a better job than market forecasters. So yet these are the people that we have on all the media channels spouting whatever their views are. So there's a, there's a really large lack of accountability in this business. Oh, it's so. crazy. There, there's some people I, I'm like, how are they still letting that person back on CNBC? Like when I came out of grad school in 09, I kept an eye on, on the, the forecasters and, oh, there's going to be hyperinflation and this bull market, you know, we're going to crash again. I mean, listen, you're not going to get everything right, but the point is you should at least follow along what people are saying. And um, the other thing that this does is it, it's sort of over time, and I don't want to belabor this point too much. We've probably already talked about it too long, but it separates wholesalers that are really, really thoughtful and do the work and have the insight versus those that are selling you what I call the mean reversion special. Do you know what the mean reversion oh, special is? I don't. Right? I think I do, and I like it. 
it's you've got you know this this investment strategy that looks awesome and the track record looks great and it's perfect and blah 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 until you buy it <laughs> yeah and so you're selling that performance only to get into the natural rhythm of mean reversion so i don't want to belabor this any any more than i have just keep track of it because i think it'll tell you exactly who's being thoughtful for to you in their recommendations and who's not is that fair fair i like it so, so let's talk about our interview with Penny. Um, and if I'm honest, after she said something like it was the best podcast interview she'd ever been a part of, I blacked out. So I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> she didn't say that on on recording, by the way. So people are going to think you're but lying. But I heard it. I heard it. <laughs> you so heard it. it, it whether, whether that was live or not. We talk a lot about practice management. This has been her full-time day job for quite a while, um, decade plus. So it was great to, to hear how she articulates things. And a lot of those things are very much in line with what we we talk about with some of the, the problems with the industry and, and some of the solutions for them. So a couple of the big takeaways. One is how much she emphasizes managing human capital, talking about and thinking through hiring, firing, personality types, multi-generational practices, which is a lot of people struggle with. She has a ton of expertise there. Uh, we talked about the idea of relentless prospecting which if you are a financial professional, chances are you are an entrepreneur or as she she loves to throw out, a solopreneur, which we have a lot of. And so if you're not relentlessly promoting yourself, who else is? So I like, I really like that idea. And then she has this almost kind of challenger sale controversial view that you should only be asking referrals from about 25% of your clients. And really interesting take because we, it's not something that, that I've heard before. But she has a lot of great ideas and is really good at communicating them. So really excited for this one. When we come back, we'll have Miss Penny Phillips. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. Penny, we're delighted to have you on. Thank you so much. I'll tell you a little bit about our show and 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 then give the audience a little bit of a background on you. But um this is a podcast. I know you've done a bunch of them, but it, it really is a community. I mean, what, what we're trying to do is group some people, uh, mostly financial professionals, but also the surrounding people in the industry that want to get together, um, collaborate and get better. Um, our community is growing pretty rapidly. And this show has been practice management focused, and we're just thrilled to have you on. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And I love how quickly you slipped into professional mode with that intro. You like so that? that was good. So are you trying to say, <laughs> are you trying to say before we record, I'm like kind of a bum? That's probably right. That That's late, Accurate. Laid back. I'd say laid back, which I like. Yes. So I think I got to know you and some of your work through Dr. Crosby, who, who I think um, is, is a friend we have in common. We, and we had him on the podcast last year, um, and it was a banger. He is incredible. And so I just started kind of seeing your name pop up on, on LinkedIn, on other socials. So it's, it just seemed like a no-brainer to get you on here and pick your brain a little bit. So can, can we start with background? Let's do it. Yeah, and it's so funny because I get that a lot. And I, I can only attribute my, my LinkedIn fame to me just relentlessly posting videos and annoying people for the past, you know, four years. And so that you know, works. <laughs> exactly. There's exactly. learning there. There's yeah, learning. There. Yeah, exactly. So I'm Penny. Uh, I, so right. I, I mean, right now I am officially the co-founder and president of a, an RIA firm called Journey Strategic Wealth. We're based in New Jersey, but our, as of this morning, we have a national footprint, which we're really excited about. But for the past five years prior to Journey, I was running a practice management coaching and consulting company. And before that, I spent you know about 10 years doing practice management work in the industry for different firms and decided to you know leave the grind and, and launch my own thing. Then I grinded even more, obviously, because you, you know you think you're going to have the flexibility and freedom when you're an entrepreneur, and then it's just it's craziness. But but yeah, that's been my my life really for the past you know I, I'd say last 14 years or so is just practice management, specifically in the financial services industry, working with advisors and institutions. So launching Journey it feels like the culmination of all my experiences consulting advisors and then deciding, hey, you know, why don't I just launch a wealth management firm and put my money where my mouth is basically. So 
It's fantastic. When when Kurt told me, "Hey, I want to have um, Penny on the show," I started to you know my immediate thought when I hear about coaches in the industry is, "Do they have substance?" Because I think <laughs> a lot of them are, in my view, and this is one person's opinion, they're great talkers, but and they're good on a stage and they could compel people. But at the end of the day, like, can they really add value? Kurt will attest to this. I'm like, man, this, she really has some substance. Like she gets, she gets deep. So, so the question for you, when you got into consulting is how did you know that there was a need? Like, how did you even get into consulting? Yeah, I got in completely by accident. So it's not like a sexy story where McKinsey hired me <laughs> and then I was like a star consultant. No, I, I started in third-party asset management, you know, in the wholesaling world. Initially, initially when I started as an, as an internal at um, one of the subsidiaries of New York Life. And honest to God, guys, I remember, you know, feeling like, mm, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll last here too long because I, I, didn't, I didn't love that world. But didn't love sales. I didn't. We have know, questions I, for you coming on yeah, that later. In the yeah, show. yeah. Yes, yeah. and you know what? I, I love that firm to death, and you know, I, I ended up doing work with them. You know, when I left and launched my own thing. But you know, for me, it was like this. I, I always was always thinking, like, what can we do differently? I didn't like the idea of having you know numbers that I had to dial, and I'm like, this sucks, man. But I liked <laughs> I liked the idea of partnership with advisors. And what I remember thinking even early on, you know, right out of school, like 21, I'm like, there's got to be a better way to position products to advisors because it's it's such a commoditized marketplace. And I remember being really fascinated with, well, if we can understand psychographics and cons- behaviors of advisors then we might be onto something because we can call them at the right time or we can send them something at the right time. And it was interesting because people weren't really thinking like that. And, um, I, you know, I, I had obviously expressed like, I, I don't want to do this. Um, you know, I want to do something else. And so there was a project in another part of the company. Um, and, and, you know, the, I, I guess the short story is they sort of needed somebody who was willing to travel around and, I, I look back now, probably single and like didn't have kids and was okay just doing whatever they said. And so I spent a lot of time traveling the country um, learning about the agency distribution system. So traditional insurance professionals understanding that side of their business with the thinking that they wanted to smartly take really successful insurance professionals and transition them to become wealth advisors. And they were having trouble doing that at the time, New York Life as a whole. And, and you know, the answer that we came up with, myself and the team at the time, was it's not a technical competency issue. It's a behavioral coaching issue. These guys have had the amount of dopamine that surged for them on a daily basis, positioning product and selling, doesn't translate to a financial planning engagement. And so I ended up, you know, building a program They're called Practice Management Solutions, and that became essentially the training for insurance agents to become financial advisors. And so I took that knowledge and then went to InvestNet and consulted there and then, you know, just just hopped around a bit before launching my own thing. But like you folks, I ran into tons of consultants and coaches, and I I hate to say it, but I'm like, this is the only profession where you can talk for an hour and not say anything. (laughs) <laughs> and people will, and, and people still pay them. It's so true. It's wild. Yeah. So I just, I promise to to never be that person, basically. <laughs> so was the problem that you were trying to solve more of helping those those insurance folks transition to the wealth side, or or was it thinking more holistically to be business participants, like CEOs, and not financial professionals? Yeah, that's a really good point. The, I, you know, both, but I had a strong opinion on it that it, and I've talked about this on my video series now, the expect, the, the pressure that we put on advisors and the way we've defined success in the business is bizarre to me. Like, wh- how, you know, there's, there's this constant thing of advisor as CEO and transition from advice. Most advisors, first of all, respectfully, don't know what a CEO, CEO actually does. Like a CEO's job is not to be sitting with clients and you know creating a financial plan. A CEO is a strategic decision maker about the business. And so number 1, why are we trying to force advisors to you know step into a CEO mindset when most of them honestly should be hiring CEOs and continuing to be advisors. So for me it was a bunch of things. It was number 1, how to get them to 
literally redefine their sales process, the way they do business, you know, think differently about the consumer and what they're offering. So get them to evolve as an advisor to come into the, you know, 21st century. And then to ultimately to help them decide what type of leader they want to be and then how to get there. So yes, to be a business owner, but, but also understand that you can own a business and not be the CEO of the business. And that is a little bit of a different perspective on it than I think a lot of coaches take. Yeah. And some financial professionals, like they're not even predisposed to even do that to your point. Um, so where do you spend your time today? I've said this quote so often the last couple of weeks, I, and it, it, I'll tie it in, I promise, but it's, we've learned everything and absolutely nothing from last year. Meaning, you know, everybody loves to talk about how God, so much has changed and there's, you know, so much, so many different things going on. And the reality is, is actually nothing's changed. Like the, every, been here all along. Yeah, huh? everything that we've already known about the business is true. Like the best in the business continue to do well and evolve because they have an ability to shift and adjust. The, the movable middle is still in the middle. Like it's just, it's all the same stuff. And so my answer is the exact same stuff I was talking about last year and for the past five years, human capital, absolutely number one on the list. How do you develop talent? How do you uh, delegate? How do you build a sustainable practice through the use of other people to help you? It's basically the number one thing that I get asked about and talk about. Um, I would say close second is the concept of enterprise value. Advisors are realizing we've, we have something of value and it's not just cash flow, but there, there's an enterprise we own and we got to monetize that. So conversations around that Human capital and and I would say business monetization top two for sure. In that human capital uh, vein, you talk a great deal. Um, I think the language, a common language we use internally is connecting generations, right? It's it's the the boomers working with Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever generation, and and building a holistic practice that is multi generational. Why is that so hard for people? Yeah, you know, I would say Thrivos, my consulting company, which I'm still the owner of, and it's still doing really well. That was probably the first thing that I, I think we became known for is is sort of trying to bridge the gap. Uh, actually, one of the first programs I ever wrote when I launched that business was, yes, you can build a business with Gen X, Y, and Z. And it was sort of, you know, a play sarcastic on this idea that, you know, you, you can't. The biggest problem is that the majority of advisors in the business are in the baby boomer generation. They were raised in a negative reinforcement sales culture. And not just sales, but in general, like the negative reinforcement. Like, Here's a phone book, yeah. go call a bunch of and people. And if right? you don't hit your quota, you suck and you are going to be kicked out of the firm. Think of our parents' generation, like the way they were raised, right? Fast forward to now Gen Y, Gen Z, positive reinforcement sales culture and positive reinforcement culture broadly. How does a young person make decisions? They make decisions by posting on social media and waiting for responses and instant feedback and instant reinforcement. And what I always say to people is think about what that's done to a sales culture. You have two people who will not only end up resenting each other, but fundamentally not understanding how one another thinks, develops. And for me, that is the primary issue in the business with bridging the gap between the two. What I say unpopularly is unfortunately, the onus is on the older generation to change and not the younger generation. And I say that because society has already changed. The younger gen, even like younger than us, right? The Gen Zers, the 20 something year old, they don't know any other way. Their brains are wired differently now. So you can't expect that person to act and think like a baby boomer. But the baby boomers and the Gen Xers have seen both. So they would have theoretically the easiest time, you know, adjusting themselves. Although that's not popular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you made a comment. You're looking at this this younger generation that and the older generation is like, oh, they're just not willing to to do the work and to They're lazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're and, lazy. and you're yeah. absolutely your observation is like, well, no, that's not the case. They're just figuring out a better way to do it and to get there faster. And, and I wanted to ask you that question because are they? Because I mean, I don't see a lot of them coming in and succeeding. And 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 who, you know, you you see where I'm going with that? I it's totally like, see where you're going. But it's like we think of millennials as 
you know, 21 year olds taking selfies and posting them on Snap. They're, millennials are 35 years old. Like they're not, you know, they, they have businesses and statistically they are more likely to be entrepreneurial, leave a corporate firm and start a business. And they're likely to do it seven years faster than their predecessors. So it depends on how you define success. And it's a really good point, Steve, because the younger gen, and again, I'm generalizing it, but the younger gen defines success differently. It's much more about experiences. It's, it's much more about, you know, can I take that trip to Thailand, you know, on my two week vacation and, you know, still launch my side hustle. Whereas our parents' generation, it was, how can I work for 60 years and finally take my first vacation when I'm retired? So totally different. So it depends how you define success. I can't say unequivocally, like, are they more successful? What I can say is they're less willing to put up with BS, and that could be a good or bad thing. I'll give you an example. Back in the day in corporate America, you stayed at your firm for 30 years to get your pin that says congrats on 30 years, especially <laughs> in you know the New York lives of the world, right? Now, I mean, I've worked at places like, I'm not staying anywhere for 30 years, especially if I'm not being treated well. I'm out the door finding something else. Different mentality. So it's tough, it's tough, it's just different. So when you're when you're talking to to people about this, what's the solution? So it's first, I guess, is understanding the difference between them and your employees and you. But then, what do you advise them to do about it? Is it to change the way that they coach and train, or or what's the solution set? Yeah, it takes a tremendous amount of self awareness, by the way, and coaching to be able to really implement initiatives effectively enough to to change culture. So I don't want to make it seem like it's just, you know, easy to do. But what I what I say to firms and and teams is you have to focus on objectives versus tasks cuz as an industry, we are obsessed with hiring people based on a job description that was written for a role that was created, you know, 30 years ago and we're obsessed with hi- with hiring and managing to that. And what I say to the older gen is the younger gen, we know a couple things about them, right? We know they value creativity. They want to be part of something, but they want to be able to, you know, flex their, you know, creative and and unique skill sets. So the way we do that in organization, it's not just in our business, is focus on what you're trying to achieve together. Establish that together. And I actually, we don't use, well, I won't say all the time, but traditional job descriptions. We say, here's what we need this role to achieve for our business on an ongoing basis. Here is how the role, when you achieve these things, whatever it is, here is how you impact firm success. Are you okay with that? Do you want to edit anything from that? And then let's let's get it going. And what I say to advisors is, if you are completely aligned on what you're trying to achieve individually as team members and then collectively let people achieve it however they want. If they're working from 10 to six instead of you know nine to five, who cares? You're achieving the same things. And so I'm very, I, I, I traditionally have been a very objectives and key results type of consultant because I, I believe it works. And so I don't try to change people, you know, because you're not going to, but I, but I want them shifting how they define success because I think that's where the answer lies. And that, that creates innovation, what you just described. Like that is the that is how you create an innovative culture. That's right. Specifically as it pertains to consumers and how consumers consume technology in the financial services industry. You have to be in front of the consumer at a very specific point in time with a very specific message in order for them to engage with you. And you have to be able to do that in a way that's both scalable and customizable at the same time. So think the Netflixes of the world. Right, what they do is both scalable because they're doing it for millions of people, but customizable. You go in, and they're picking out movies that they think you would like. Same concept. There's algorithms and AI that's underpinning that. The individual solopreneur advisor, it's almost impossible for them to do that. For them to be able to do that, they have to have access to really awesome tech and you know marketing automation platforms that do that. Other than tech impacting pricing and and squeezing margins and investment management, that is the the biggest, I would say, tech trend that's impacting the advisory business. I I was listening to you on another podcast, you know, that you guys were talking about, like, what questions do you get often? 
and you said, hey, I'm always asked, what are advisors doing to grow? And you said, there's only one answer to that. It's not going to change. I'm wondering if you could tell us what that answer is. (laughs) There's two ways to get business right now. One is through your current clients. Two, it's by talking relentlessly about your business. And again, if you're a solopreneur advisor, meaning you're running your business independently, you don't have access to millions of dollars in capital to run marketing campaigns, you're a solo advisor trying to grow or solo business trying to grow. It's go directly to your clients and and you know engage with them enough and in such a superior way that they're going to want to tell others. Or secondly, relentlessly talk about your business to every single person that you engage with, including centers of influence, people who can advocate on your behalf. And most importantly, talk about the fact that you are growing and evolving. People in today's world want to be part of something greater than themselves. The best example of this is Robinhood and GameStop and the drama of a couple weeks ago. What a great example of the power of feeling like you are part of a movement. And you can do that really easily by simply talking about your business and putting that content out there. And I do it you know, weekly with my Wednesday Wisdoms. One of the other things that you, that you said on the topic of business development was this idea of institutionalizing business development. What did you mean by that phrase? Yeah. F- consultant secret, fancy word, use, you know, thesaurus and put in some fancy words. You know, basically. You see how serious he's gotten now, too. He's like, sides full professional mode. What Kurt says to me is like, all I do is talk about frameworks. Okay. So understand who you're talking about. Oh, to he lo- favorite word. Yeah. Framework is my favorite word. Anyway, go ahead. Institutionalizing yeah. is up there for me. But but just and, and for all my advisors listening or salespeople, you know, I am a salesperson. That's my core skill at the end of the day. And, you know, using words like relentless, like, institutionalizing like conviction. We have a hundred percent conviction in what you do. Obviously you get people interested in what you're talking talking about, but you know, it's, it's the idea that when I ask advisors to think about this, if we were to remove you and your whole team from the organization for six months, would any leads come into the business in that six month time frame? If not, and, and how, how would those leads come in? Those leads would come in because you have an automated video campaign that goes out. Leads would come in because you do some sort of marketing that happens outside of you having to manually do it. That generates interest in what you do. Um, so in, that's institutionalization. It's, it's established in the organization. It can be repeated, and it doesn't need one single individual person uh, you know, to, to effectively implement it. You had posted something about marketing, and the spirit of it was, Get past the strategy and just start executing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then and someone commented that had a the opposite yeah. view. It was like, oh, strategy is really important and you should spend a lot of time with it, which I don't know anybody that would disagree with okay. that. But the point was, and, and I think this is kind of what we're talking around is just start doing something. Exactly. You know? like, make some decisions, tip your toes in the water and get to work on it. Um, you'll, you'll figure out what works over time. That's exactly right. I know. Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. I love him, but I think he, I think he (laughs) runs like a strategic marketing firm. So of course he has to say that, but, um, Uh, maybe, maybe, but no, my, my point, you got my point exactly. And that's the relentless prospecting concept. And I, and by the way, having coached advisors for, you know, a decade, I, I see this all the time. They get really hung up on, we need the, per- do you have a marketing plan template? Do you, do you have a bit, do you have a business plan template? Like we need, first of all, you don't need a marketing plan template, open up a word document and write the things you want to achieve. What's your budget. And you know, like, so for me, I'm, I'm, I don't get really hung up on that type of stuff. If you look at those who are the best in the business, they're the best in the business, perhaps because they're great strategists, but more because they are able to simply do. And it, not a lot of things get in their way. And anybody who's been successful as an, uh, an entrepreneur can attest to that. You simply have a higher propensity than others to do. You could do to do new stuff, to do different stuff, to do stuff that's unpopular. And so when I say just do, what I mean is you don't have to hire a consultant to talk you through best practices on LinkedIn to start writing something on LinkedIn. And 
what I want to be sensitive to is not everybody is a creator. That is, I think, a unique skill set that some people have. I say to advisors, there is nobody better positioned to create content than you because you are listening to conversations with you on the front lines. every single yeah. day. So if you're mm-hmm. wondering what to write or what to record, keep an audit in one week of all of the questions your clients ask you in your conversations with. And the question could be, you know, do you have any recommendations for, you know, an after school program for my kids? I got to go back to like it could be silly everyday questions. That's what you build your marketing content around. Questions, questions that your clients have is so simple and and not a lot of it's people do so it. so good. No, and, 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 and people, so growth and marketing is, is you know, the evergreen question that we get from, from mailbag, like what to ask people. And, but the, my first question to them is, well, what are you doing now? But when you get the blank stare back, well, that, that's, that's the answer. You should, you should be doing something, do something that you enjoy, find something you enjoy, put some dollars behind it, let her rip. That's the strategy. That's a, that's um, exactly right. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. It doesn't. And, you know, the other thing is be be okay with being vulnerable with your client. I just, I get it. Like my father, by the way, doesn't own a cell phone. So I understand these advisors better <laughs> than anyone. Because um, I'm I've jealous lived of him. Yeah, I'm he's, jealous of him. He's off the I grid. I really am. He's yeah, off the grid awesome. and, and never will be on it. But, you know, so but what I say to them is, but you're a business owner who's running a business and you're promising clients that, you, you have this multi-gen business. We're going to be around forever. And I, I tell them, directly send an email to your clients right now and say to them, look, we've learned a lot over the last year as a business. We realize that we, want, we, we need to be communicating with you in a faster and more efficient way. And we want to reach new audiences because not enough people have access to quality advice. So, so we're going to start doing things you've never seen us do before. We're going to start recording videos. We're going to start writing blogs and you're going to see us more on social media. We hope you'll support us. Clients would be more than happy. They would, they love, would that. love that. They would be, first of all, they'd think it's cool. Secondly, mm-hmm. it, they, what are they going to say? That's it. Oh my God. I can't believe my advisor is trying to market. Like nobody's going to say that. So that immediately takes down the line of defense and immediately gives you permission to to try something and, you know, maybe F it up a couple times and everybody will think it's fine. So there you go. I can't wait till this podcast is released (laughs) and I'm going to send it to about five teams because literally just yesterday. Yeah. We're not really kind of a touchy feely kind of team. What am I going to do a virtual wine tasting? Like that's not who we are. It's like, no, no, no. Like you can do this and it doesn't have to be where you're doing wine and cheese over (laughs) zoom. Like it doesn't have to be like that. Exactly. But it can. It can. Of course it can. I had one last night. That was fantastic. Uh, The other point you made was where does content creation come from? And this is exactly the point you made on what the best advisors are doing to grow their businesses, like being really good about at what they do. And so that's also where the content should come from. Exactly right. Like Sonia says to me, what are are things advisors are worried about right now? I I talk to advisors all day. I know the answers to that. If, If you ask an advisor, what are the top things your clients are worried about right now? And they can't answer that. That's that's. There's a deeper issue there, yeah. and like we need to be honest about that. Um, but I say to advisors: imagine a client, your best one, run through a day in their life, go through an, a whole day, start from okay. So they wake up at about what time? Uh, do they work out in the morning? Like if you really get to know your client, you know these things. I know most of my advisors. They go to CrossFit at X Y Z time. My New Jersey advisors do right X Y Z time, and then they're in their office, and you know. So I know their spouses. I know their kids because I ask, because I listen. And so advisors are in an even better position to do that. And so write out everything that that they go through in a day. They wake up. Do they drop their kids off? Does, Does their spouse? And what are we trying to get at here? What we're trying to get at is what are the psychographic challenges and issues and points that we can derive from this information? Meaning, Beyond just knowing that your client is a, you know, Gen X entrepreneur, is your client somebody who's really struggling with work-life balance? Is your client somebody who is feeling, you know, an intense amount of pressure having to care for both young kids and older parents? Like, these are the types of things that we want to derive from understanding, you know, a day in their life and then use that information to build marketing content. Simple. I'm curious, 
now that we've spent a little bit of the time together here, what do you think of two wholesalers having a podcast talking about practice management? Uh, uh, like, does that idea strike you as alien? Does it make sense? Where, where are you at? With it that? is what wholesalers should have been allowed to do or doing, you know, 10 years ago. And it's, it. so I love it. And, you know, I think it's tremendous. And we've seen this trend. We've seen the wholesaling business, you know, wholesalers have to, for some time, moonlight as, you know, the practice management coach or practice management specialist, because that is the way they're going to form bonds and build rapport with advisors. And so doubling down on that by actually saying, we're not just going to sort of pretend like we know about practice management, we're actually going to get deep into it so we can provide value. It is those wholesaling forces that are going to survive the next, you know, couple of years. And that's just the, the cold, hard truth. So I love it. I think it's awesome. We paid her to say that. We simply, <laughs> yeah. Before. Checks in the mail. I mean, By the way, is it weird true. that every time you say New Jersey, I do a fist bump? The audience I, can't see it. I noticed like, that. that. I know <laughs> That's that Jersey Shore thing. I know. I've wanted the GTL joke a little while ago about Jersey. I've, I've never watched that show. I never will watch that show. You, I you have watched it twice, end to end, and have it's you? amazing. Yes, I have. Come on. It's, come on. It's right. classic. You, so good. You want me to get into is why that New show Jersey? is terrible? You want me to get into that with you guys? <laughs> What's the question, Kurt? Then I want to talk about the Jersey Shore for a second. What's the question? Well, I'm just curious if like the New Jersey, New York thing is like, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to frame it as a South Louisiana guy. Is like, is that like Louisiana versus Mississippi? Is is that what, what's going on there? Or well, let me, like, let me give you the background. Yeah. So first of all, when we're Go watching ahead, this Steve. show about, about Jersey Shore, like none of these people are from New Jersey at all, right? So let's start there. Maybe they're from North Jersey, maybe, but like they're from like... Staten Rhode Island, Island. Poughkeepsie. Yeah, yeah that's like, true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so the reason I don't watch a show is because this is my life. So I actually lived in Jersey <laughs> and we went to the shore all the time. And in the summer, it would be invaded by these New Yorkers for, that would just like take a bunch of steroids and start fights <laughs> with people. This is real. Like it's not fake. This These people. So we would avoid the bars that these people went to. So these people are real. They're just not. Oh, oh, they people. are real. Has this, you know, because this is our, I don't know how, how old you guys are, but I'm assuming we're all around the same age range. But is this like, I, I, I'm i upset because I, I think it's a thing of the past. I think the GTL phase, that Jersey, I mean, yeah. I spent many a weekends in Atlantic City and, you know, the whole nine yards. But but I, I don't, I just feel like it's different now because people are, and back then, by the way, we didn't, we really didn't have social media the way we do now. There wasn't an instant ability to like share and and you know, do all the stuff that's going on now. So I'm, I'm just, I'm worried that the Jersey Shore days are, are gone and all the characters are gone. Here's how we're going to solve this. Cause I haven't, I left Jersey in 05 and I haven't lived there since then. And unfortunately I like, I just never really get back there anymore. Here's what I want to do. Cause you're going to answer that question. So now you have Jersey Shore partners. Here's what <laughs> I want you to do in the summertime. When things open up, I want you to tell your partners, take me to Belmar. Belmar, New Jersey. Come on. You think I don't know Belmar? Come on, Steve. Do you know Belmar? Okay. I don't know you hung out on the shore. And I want you to bet. Where do you spend your time hanging out? Like bar we were, A? Like, go to bar A. We were, right we were go New, to bar A. We were New York. Yeah. I mean, we're, as New Yorkers, we are, you know, Fire Island, Hamptons, uh, you know, Montauk crews. But but we made our way down. Of course, how could you not? Jersey Shore. Did you? I mean, well, yes. I don't know. Some New Yorkers, they're like, why would we go down to Jersey? Like, it's it's like a negative thing to go to Jersey. It's like, I'm sorry, our beaches are better, but you know. Um, <laughs> but you went down, so you appreciated we, Jersey. I'm loving. We it. did, okay. but but I'm a subculture. I am New York Borough Greek, which is totally different. Like that is. Is it? it oh my god, and and Jersey Greeks too. It's like all. It's it, the tightest Greek community, the most incestuous thing in the world, and. Honest to God, not to make anybody jealous here, but we spent our summers, we would go down to either AC, as we called it, or we'd head to Greece because all of us have our families there. So our summers were like on the islands. I know. No big deal. No big deal. It's it's, it's not, believe me, it's not like I have a mansion over there, but my family happens to be in Greece and a lot of my generation, like our parents were born there. So we just, we would go, you know, hang there with the other Greeks and it's like Jersey Shore, but European style, which is worse, so... Can, yeah. can I, we're going to come back to business, but I have one final question. <laughs> Do you have friends with diners? It, everybody I know has a diner. Every single person. Kurt, it's have not. you got, have you gone to a Jersey, that, Jersey diner? Have you, have you, cause like, yeah. So my dad lived in South, I forgot. Lived in 
Tom's River. Oh, yeah. For the best food you'll ever hours. have. Like, I, I love the diner food in best Jersey. Best thing ever. It's, yeah. When I would go there, like, Dad, can we just yeah. go to a diner every day for breakfast? It's um, the best. Okay, so referral language, bringing us back. How about that? <laughs> referral language. Referral language. Um, yeah, so just talk about how you think about that. This is something I've been pretty opinionated about. There's a couple things I'm opinionated about. Like the uh, value proposition, elevator speech exercises that consultants do. That would be, you know, a tie for number one with with the referral language exercises. And I just think for so long we've been pretending as an industry that any human, I mean, not any, but that most human beings would respond positively to the question of like, hey, you mentioned your neighbor you know, often and, and, you know, could they, would they be able to, you know, leverage some of like, nobody, first of all, you don't talk like that in real life. And and secondly, that's yeah. not, obviously, I, I, cause I get this question a lot, you know, would, would my client feel weird if I asked to, you know, be introduced to their sibling or, you know, their neighbor, or their, you know, coworker. And I, the honest answer is the majority of people would feel awkward. Some people can pull that off, and we all know those advisors. They're the very, like, sort of, the, the salesy thing is their thing, and so they can get away with it. But the majority of advisors, first of all, are not like that. And secondly, imagine going to a therapist or a psychologist, right, talking about your parents and how much they, you know, screwed you up. And then at the end, the therapist saying, how, would you be open to me, you know, meeting your parents? Or Like, it just, you... So it's similar. You what I or do you know anybody anybody else that's screwed right? up? <laughs> is anyone else at your level of screwy? Please introduce me to them. So what I say to advisors is you if you really are a, a really, really good advisor, if you really have EQ, high EQ, every engagement is so obsessively focused on the client, what they want, what they need. Each conversation, and I tell advisors, go into conversations with clients. Before you go in, ask yourself the question of what is this person trying to achieve in this conversation and what do they need from me? Those are two coaching questions, by the way. And you could use that tactic with a spouse or a partner, right? If you're in an argument or having a difficult discussion, ask yourself, how can I be most helpful in this conversation? When you act like that with a client, trust me, you will never have to ask for a referral again. You will never have to. And that is the truth. And we don't Say that enough to advisors, candidly, because firms don't want to spend money on EQ training and practice management. If we train the entire industry on that obsessive, active listening, you would never have to ask for a referral. So what I say to advisors is create referable experiences, number one, you know, first and foremost, but switch your way of thinking about it. So if you ask me, should we be asking for referrals from every client? My answer is no. There is a subset of people in the world who are natural connectors. And if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's work, he talks a lot about this. You know, there are people like if you guys were to think about who who do we know who can, you know, introduce us to, you know, a great speaker. Like people come to mind. The movers and shakers, people who like they always got a guy, like you got a good plumber, like they have the best, you have a good dentist, like they have the best dentist. Those type of people exist. Usually in a book of business, it's like 25% or less of your book have that natural advocacy type personality. If you tap those people, they will want to help. They will be excited to refer. But you have to be able to identify those people and then make the ask in the right way. And the way you make the ask is saying, look, we have a plan for the next 10 years we're a rocket ship to the moon. Although I hate that analogy. It's so stupid, but we're building something tremendous. We're picking a couple of clients. We want you to be part of an advisory board. We're looking to get the word out about what we're doing to more people in this specific demographic of, of, of clientele. You are a person who can help us. When you say those words to an advocate type networky person, suddenly they feel excited. Suddenly they feel like, wow, I'm special and important. They, they need me. So you, it can be done, but it has to be done very intentionally with a certain subset of clients. 
Yeah, it's like that that comment about being a part of something bigger than themselves. That's what I was thinking as we were talking about this. It, it, that feeling and that desire to be part of something is that's not a millennial thing. That's that's an everybody. It's a human. Thing. Everybody wants. It's a human thing. Yeah. It's it's a human. Absolutely. And if you tell advisors, think about the people in your book who are the best influencer, who have influence, who are the networkers. They will be able to identify a couple people without a doubt. Yeah. Well, and EQ comes up so much. When, when we had our chat with Dr. Crosby, like that was a big differentiator in how firms will likely be hiring in the future, um, which is a, a distinct change from how they have hired historically. High EQ people are, are much better overall fits for where the, the financial advice business is going. There was a study done by, I think, I don't, I think it was the Employee Benefit Research Institute um, the study was done on high net worth baby boomers and their propensity to move assets from one advisor to another. Um, the the advisors who garnered the most business were advisors with high EQ and low years of experience. So everybody thinks like the advisors who are doing like advisors put on their website. We've been in business for, you know, 285. Like nobody cares about that. The truth is. <laughs> You could be in business for 40 years and have low EQ and your ability to to land the business is much lower than somebody who's in the business five years with tremendously high EQ and, and, I mean, critical thinking skills, of course, but that's been proven statistically for sure. So there's there's probably a million other questions we want to ask, but we can't hold you forever. So we're going to close with a lightning round, quick questions, quick answers, but before we do... Plug, plug what you're doing. Tell us about more about the REA. Tell us a little bit more where people can find you. Yeah, sure. I, you just go on any social media platform. I'm plugging stuff there. But, you know, tw- uh, definitely Twitter, Thrivos LLC. That's my original business. But, but my new thing is uh, Journey, Journey Strategic Wealth. It's the name of the company. We are an RIA. And, the, we, you know, my, my message to folks is, working in the RIA space for several several years, the one thing I noticed is that there isn't a lot of differentiation. Um, people go to market and say, we have the best tech and we have the best. And the truth is, you no, you don't. Everybody's using the same tech. It's the same services. It's the same pricing. The, the advisor, like the consumer, has to make a choice now between lowest cost or highest value. And for me, Lowest cost is payout, right? You, they, firms try to attract advisors with like, we'll pay you 92%. And for me, I'm like, okay, they still have to run a business. So you're not really helping them. And so for us, we decided to launch something that was on the highest value of that equation. So advisors join us. Uh, they outsource all practice management to us, meaning we take over payroll for their team. We help them develop team members, hire. We do all operations, billing, infrastructure, everything for them. And they're owners of their business completely. So for me, it was what's so great about the wirehouse channel, traditionally what was so great, this ability to sort of give everything an advisor needs to him, but with the beauty of the independent channel, which is advisors own equity in their business and own their clients. So I think we've checkmated the business, but we'll see. Wow. Congratulations. And we'll be following to see how that goes, but certainly a great idea. All right. Penny, quick questions, quick answers. Why didn't you like being a wholesaler? Oh, God. <laughs> truth only. Ooh, truth, truth only. only. I do not operate well in like the traditional corporate structure of you have to make this many calls and you have to hit this. I, it just, it doesn't work for me and it was mindless. Too rigid. Yeah, no, not for me. Not for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you, are you into sweets? I, it, yes. Okay, I need, I need... Favorite Greek dessert? Oh, gosh. Hey, this is a tough one to say. It's a galactoburiko. It is a, yeah, it's a long one. It's like a it's like a custard sort of pie with like a phyllo. It's amazing. Oh, that's awesome. You I asked for it, guys. Yeah, I mean, come on. Most satisfying consulting en- engagement. You've been, you've been oh, dealing wow. with a lot of teams for a long time. Which one jumps out as like, wow, I love this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say one. I've worked with two really, really amazing teams. Um, for many years, and I've watched them grow from the solo practice with one, you know, associate to a you know multi gen team with multiple partners. Watching that evolution real time, um, just incredible. It, it, I, you know, so it, it's for me. I've done institutional consulting and, and individual advisor coaching, and it's always the latter that gets me because these are real people building real businesses. So, yeah. 
is it easy or hard to differentiate from the average FA? Me, me for myself or for the uh, no. FAs to differentiate from one another? The latter. The latter. Um, it, it, the answer is twofold. I'm not good at lightning rounds, by the way, because I talk way too much, but um, <laughs> it's okay. it is n- difficult. Most people got into the business because they wanted to make money and not because they had some calling, you know, to be, you know, to deliver advice. It's the one that did have that calling or have a deeper purpose that have an easy time differentiating, but it's a long answer. No, that's good. Last question. We'll let you leave on this. You made the comment. There is absolutely no excuse for not holding virtual events. Talk about that. We as salespeople, as service providers, you have to evolve alongside the consumer and change will never be as slow as it is today. Think about that statement. And that I didn't say that, but Justin Trudeau said that in a speech, but meaning you have to evolve literally every day you have to come into the business without a preconceived notion about what's going to work. Meaning what worked yesterday may not work today. So what do we know today? We know that people are spending their time online. There you go. There's your answer. That's all you need to know. If tomorrow people are spending their time on a spaceship, you know, going to Mars to visit, you got to figure a way to get into that market. And that's exactly it. It's that simple. Awesome. Penny Phillips, everybody. You are awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm happy to come back. Uh, yeah, I, there, there's probably 20 questions that we didn't get to that Kurt yeah, and I So that'd be fun. I'm happy to come back. Awesome. Uh, we'll be right back with the Costanza Corner. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to the whole truth and our closing segment called the Costanza Corner, where we like to end the show on a high note. Side, you're up today. What you got? One of my favorite Costanza corners I ever did. I don't know if it's yours, but it was mine. Remember the one I talked about where there was uh, a meteor that crashed through this guy's house and he got rich from it. Do you remember that? Yes. Would it be crazy if I told you that there's a part two to this, like not the same story, but a cool, another fun, awesome story. This always happens in Asia, by the way. I don't know why. Like, why is this not (laughs) happening to me, California? But I digress. We've got a part two. So this is um, a person who is a struggling, described as struggling Thai fisherman. So he was out one day and he was looking through um, and doing uh, various, uh, basically harvesting oysters. And and I'll, I'll read directly from the article. The 37-year-old and his brother picked the shells off the ball, this ball that they found and took them home. They gave them to their father, blah, blah, blah. And they found something after they cleaned off the ball, an orange pearl, slightly bigger than a U.S. quarter. So it's if you picture this, think about a, a pretty reasonable size round orange pearl. And so you can probably guess where I'm going with this. This little pearl that they found has an estimated retail value of $333,000. So how about that? That's too precise of a number to be real. So someone's taking some extra margin there. The struggling, impoverished Thai fisherman finds this rare orange sizable pearl, and now he's got some dough. I loved it. I loved reading this story. <laughs> Google that online. Um, the, the title, Struggling Thai Fisherman Finds Pearl. Like, Take a look at this thing. It's super cool. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.